Today is the birthday of my very much younger colleague, Andy Rock. Very much. Can we give him a hand? Happy birthday. Today I am 43 years old. Well, good morning, y'all. We are in uh, the first Samuel sermon series last week. We talked about uh, how when King David, well, he's not king yet, he's just a junior hire, and he was anointed and chosen by God. That was last week. This week, we're going to be um, in First Samuel 17 when we talk about David and Goliath. So before we do that, let's pray, because we need God's help. Amen? Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you for incredible worship. Thank you for these incredible people. You are so good and so great. Come, Holy Spirit, fill this place. Fill our hearts. We give you permission to speak to us, to change us, to break off anything that is binding us up. And we now pray against anything that would be a distraction for us this morning, anything opposed to Jesus that would be bothering us in the spiritual realm, we mute now in the name of Jesus. We just ask for space this morning for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth, in this place, in our hearts, as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So last week, we ended with this statement. Um, it was this, this verse, actually, so 1 Samuel 16, 13. Read this with me. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. So Samuel's the prophet, and Samuel's taking a horn of oil and anointing David, literally pouring oil, olive oil, all over him. And what happens? And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, and Samuel went to Ramah. So time passes. What is David doing? David is still a shepherd. Like nothing changes in his life. I mean, he's got the Holy Spirit now resting upon him, but it's not like his father thought more of him. He was still the runt of the litter. You ever been a shepherd? I mean, have you ever watched paint dry? <laughs> That's what it looks like to be a shepherd, right? Yep, got all the sheep. Still got all the sheep. And still got them all, right? I mean, you're just bored to tears. So what does David do? David, well, like any teenager, David keeps himself busy, right? He gets a guitar for Christmas. And so he brings his guitar out there, and he's playing his guitar and learning his guitar. And he figures out how to make a sling, a throwing sling. And so he sits there and practices all day long, bored to tears. And sure enough, when a mountain lion and a bear show up to eat a sheep, David can yell in tune, <laughs> right, and say, Hey, bear, go away, bear, and swing, right, and sling the rock at him. The well, same thing happens with a mountain lion. That's David's life. Now, uh, 
oftentimes what we do is that we think that the word anointing, when David was anointed with oil, that that's somehow different than what David experiences next. And um, the word anoint in Hebrew literally means to become employed. Isn't that cool? When you're anointed, that means that you literally have a job. Which means that your everyday life, whether you get a paycheck or not, is the place where God shows up. And sometimes what we do is that we think that, well, no, no, that's not the, you know, like God is going to use me for something special, but laundry isn't special, or the meal prep isn't special, or going to work isn't special, or going to school isn't special. Like, there's got to be something, like, when God shows up, it's special, right? You know, there's razzle-dazzle involved. But that's not our life. And that's because what God wants us to understand and to help us understand is that the anointing that God gives you is for your everyday life. When Martin Luther uncovered the power of the gospel in the 1500s, it was like he was uncorking a bottle of wine. And as he poured out this beautiful aged wine, everybody who smelled it and drank it, this good news was just was floored. And, and what the Protestants figured out, what the Catholics who protested, Protestants, what the Protestants figured out is this is that the Protestant work ethic isn't about working hard as it is as much about inviting God into the everyday work of your life so that you, I mean, I mean like in every area you would create with God something absolutely beautiful. That's the Protestant work ethic. That in every moment of your life you would see that God can provide something holy and something sacred which is his very presence. So now meals are an act of thanksgiving and hospitality. And now work is an opportunity to love. Now school is an opportunity to love and pray for and care for people. Now, now being with your family or, or where, it doesn't matter where you go, you bring God with you. You picking up what God's putting down? So... To create such beauty and meaning and love in each task that even herding sheep feels like the work of a king. So, meanwhile, the actual king of Israel, Saul, is in a terrible spot. What Saul has done is the exact opposite of what David is doing. He's asking that in every area of his life, God would just butt out. He's saying... Samuel, stop, stop bothering me. I can do your job. I don't need you. God, I don't need to listen to your advice or to actually follow what you're saying. Just go away. Just butt out. And so God uncovers Saul from his angelic protection to grant what Saul wants the most, which is to live apart from God. Have you ever wanted that? Say yes. yes. Remember that moment? when God gave you exactly what you wanted? Say yes. yes. Terrible, wasn't it? Read with me, verse 14. Now, Spirit of the Lord, 
what? What is going on here? The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That makes sense. So if we could read this morally, we could say, well, yeah, okay, Saul made bad decisions, so he deserved that. Or maybe we could read it psychologically, right? A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented. So Saul's feeling anxious, or he has a personality disorder, or he needs to take his meds, and he's depressed, or whatever. And so he's feeling like God is after him. But let's not read it either morally or psychologically. Let's just read it the way the text says that it's there and assume that the biblical writers actually were trying to make a point. What's the point that the biblical writers are trying to make? Well, number one, God gives Saul exactly what he wants. But number two, why does God then allow this evil or tormenting spirit to bother Saul? Here it is. Ready? God will use any choice Saul makes, any circumstance, anything, so that God's will is done. Whatever paint color we, got, we give God, God will use that paint color to create the picture that he wants. I'll never forget, April and I, we were in um, seminary in New Jersey. We're in seminary housing, which is this big apartment complex with eight or 10 buildings. And all of our friends, literally all of our friends, are in these buildings, married student housing. And my buddy Joe calls me at 3 o'clock in the morning. He says, Andy, you've got to come over here right now. Like, uh, something's freaky is going on. And so April and I go over there at 3 o'clock in the morning. And Joe describes to me being awake, um, uh, being woken up in the middle of the night. And literally, his body is being lifted off of his bed and slammed down on top of the bed, like five or six inches. And this loud voice says, do not take the job at Tower Hill Presbyterian Church. Now, he had just accepted a job at Tower Hill Presbyterian Church in Red Bank, New Jersey, which is like if you were standing in, in downtown Manhattan at the World Trade Center, you threw a rock towards New Jersey, you'd hit Red Bank, where Tower Hill Presbyterian Church is. Very, very wealthy, very, very nice town. It's the perfect quintessential New Jersey beach town. And so Joe's like, there's like an evil, harmful spirit here in this house. Andy prayed away. Uh, leave in Jesus' name? I mean, like, well, I, okay, you know, so I'm praying. April and I are praying. Joe's like, oh, whew, thank goodness. Well, fast forward five years later, Joe's been the associate pastor for youth at Tower Hill Presbyterian Church. Um, Joe's six foot two, 190 pounds, Olympic athlete. He's now weighs 115 pounds. He's been sick for two years. Um, he's gone to the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, uh, where his family donated a wing there. He's got the best medical care in the world. No one knows why he has constant pain all over his body. Um, oh, by the way, Tower Hill Presbyterian Church, um, they arrested a staff member for what he was doing online. Um, the, one of the elders is the CEO of Citibank. Um, uh, lots of money. Their church is built on an Indian gravesite. Um, witchcraft is happening in the back of the church on after hours. You know, like some weird stuff. And Joe is sick on his deathbed. He feels like he's literally dying. They decide to walk away from their house. They lose their house. They go basically bankrupt. And I'm helping Joe move all of his stuff from New Jersey to Utah, where he's now living. And we're, we're San Diego, where he would land prematurely and then go, finally go to Utah. And, 
And he's reading Job. And there in the book of Job, it says, O Lord, you wake me up in the middle of the night and shake me and tell me what to do. You know, sometimes we're tormented because we're not listening. Sometimes we're tormented because evil happens. But no matter what, God will use any choice that you and I make, any circumstance, anything, so that his will and his plan for our life is done. Picking up? Making any sense? Verse 16. So Saul's friends, his servants, said to him, well, hey, let us seek out a man who is skillful in playing the guitar, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he'll play it, and you will be well. So we're going to create an ancient Near Eastern radio station. And Paul says, okay. I mean, like, he has no capacity to solve this problem whatsoever, so he needs to rely on his friends. Oh, if only Saul would learn that lesson, but he doesn't. Verse 18, one of the young men answered, behold, behold. I want to start sentences like that in my 43rd year. Behold, the ice cream. Uh, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. This does not sound like David. This is David, right? There's David. This is not a man of valor. This is not a man of war. This is maybe a man of good speech, but that's about it, right? David's still 15 or 16. He's a shepherd. He's not a warrior. But the point is simple. God is going to use this bad thing in Saul's life in order to bring David and Saul together. Can you see God's plan from 30,000 feet? Say yes. yes. Again, God will use any choice that you and I make, any circumstance, good or bad, any input from the outside world, good or bad, to make his plan for our best make it happen. Verse 21, so David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul, read with me, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his That's the guy who carries Saul's armor around. Keep on reading. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon David, or Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Wow. This is really important. David does not make Saul better. David worships and Saul benefits. This is your job in the relationships that you have in your life. You do not make people better. You can pray, you can help, you can serve with the talents that you have. David can worship. What are the talents that you have? You can do those things, but when you do things, they're an offering to your king of kings, and he will use what you offer to make things better, but you're not responsible for making something or someone better. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So 
this is exactly what's going to happen in the next scene. This story and the next story are tied together. David will serve God and Saul will benefit. You ready for the next story? You know it. Here we go. You ready? Come on, baby. Let's go. Here we go. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley in between them. Um, so literally, the Philistines are on one hill, the Israelites on another hill, and every day they would both march down their respective hills and meet in a lower valley together to sort of face off with one another, okay? How do you feel if you're an Israelite soldier going out to face the Philistines? A little bit nervous. You just beat Al-Qaeda and ISIS Jr., right? The Amorites and the Amalekites. So you got some confidence. But this is the Philistines. This is Iran. So you're a little bit nervous, right? But you feel okay, okay? Then... A giant, nearly 10 feet tall, steps out from the Philistine lines into the open, a giant named Goliath from Gath, and he looks at you with his bronze helmet on his head, dressed in armor, 126 pounds of it. He wore bronze shin guards and carried a bronze sword. His spear was like a fence rail. The spear tip alone weighed over 15 pounds, and his shield bearer walked ahead of him. And what does Goliath do? He comes out of the line and he taunts you. He, I mean, he's just ripping you a new one. And he's saying, I'm going to kill you and everybody that you know, and I'm going to destroy you. And what he says is, come on, anybody who wants to fight me, let's not have our armies fight. You just come out here and you fight me. And whoever loses will serve the other one. Let's go. How do you feel now? A little bit scared, right? Let's read how Saul and the army feels. Read with me. When Saul... Greatly afraid. It's the same word in Hebrew that when we talk about the fear of the Lord, it's the same Hebrew word. Saul and the Israelites feared Goliath just like one fears God. Goliath was bigger than God for Saul and the members of the military. How long did this happen? Every day they'd walk out and meet. Goliath would taunt them, and Saul and the Israelites would melt away in fear. How long did it happen? Verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Oh, dang. And then one day, a new day dawns. The timing is such that David, he's delivering pizza to his brothers who are in the army just in time to see Goliath march out and give his taunts and to watch King Saul and the soldiers of Israel petrified and melt away with tears. 
And, and part of this is good strategy, you know, like Saul, he's not just a scaredy cat. He's actually thinking, listen, I don't want to fight Goliath. I might lose. But more importantly, um, I don't want to put our, our military at a disadvantage. I'd rather keep the high ground and make the Philistines come to me, no matter how much Goliath is going to taunt me. But there's a wrinkle. Well, there's two wrinkles. Number one, the first wrinkle is that David hears Goliath. And the second wrinkle is this, is that Saul has, has tried to um, sweeten the pot. He's, he's given a bounty to defeat Goliath, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime offer. Read this with me. The men of Israel said to David, the king will enrich the man who kills Goliath with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house tax-free in Israel. Oh, dang. Are you serious? No taxes for life, a new wife, a lifetime of privilege, great wealth. That's quite a deal. Like if you were given that deal, what would be your response? Maybe. Does anybody have a sniper rifle? Can I just run in circles around Goliath until he tires out? How do I do this, right? Let's read David's response. Here it is. And David said to the men who stood by him, no, come on. Hey, hey. No, no, no. David was not like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? You got to be a little bit incensed when you say this, right? This is one of the better lines in 1 Samuel, okay? All right, here we go. Are you ready? Come on, belt it out a little bit incensed. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Mm. Right? Now, notice, I'm sure you're noticing one thing about what David says, but notice what David doesn't say. He never mentions Saul. He's not saying who defies the armies of Saul. It's the armies of who? The living God. David's concern is about God, but no one really listens. David's brothers and the rest of the men are exceedingly realistic. They think to themselves, no, no reward is worth certain death. But David keeps on saying the same thing, conversation after conversation after conversation. And the issue isn't about Goliath or the army. The issue is about God. What is our God like? Is God really alive or is he just an idea? Like is, is God just sort of out there or is he actually our redeemer and savior and friend? I mean, up to this point in Israel's history, no one would look at the Philistine army or the, the division that was standing on the hill across them and go, oh no. I mean, this is nothing compared to Pharaoh's battalion of chariots crashing down upon the Israelites who had no weapons in their hands. And God won that battle. What? They, he, he, they can't handle the Philistines? They just beat the Amorites and the Amalekites. They're going to be okay. See, when your God is small, serious, legitimate problems feel like impossible problems. So when fear says to run or hide or freak out or take control or try and do all those things at the exact same time, that actually sounds reasonable when God is small and our problems feel big. 
That's why we listen to fear. But when God is really big, like, like as big as he actually is, the serious problems that we face are actually in their correct proportion. It's not that they're not issues. It's not that they're not real. It's not that they're not significant. It's just that they're not bigger than God. And so when fear says to panic or to run, we can laugh. When April and I lived in Ireland 20 years ago, we rented a furnished apartment in Dublin. We walked in and there was a table that was two feet by two feet with two chairs um, and then a couch that was half the size of this communion table and then a twin-size bed. And I'll, we'll never forget that. The, the listing agency says, oh, it's a lovely bed. You know, it's just gorgeous. You're, you know, you're, it's perfect. It's, it's huge, you know, for the two of you. You know, and so like April and I are like, we're like, we're, we're like half on each other while we're sleeping and, and um, even, we, I mean, we were newlyweds, but that was ridiculous, right? So we we're like, okay, fine. So he said, we'll go out and buy a piece of foam, you know, and maybe like we'll have this thick piece of foam and we'll let it hang off the edges six inches on all sides. And then like I could like put like a leg out, you know, and, and the mattress itself was horribly uncomfortable. And so and then we're out, we're out shopping and buy the piece of foam. And then we like, oh, we go to the store, Marks and Spencer's, and we're like, oh man, this is great. You know, it's like Target in Ireland, and we buy like pots and pans, and there's a TV on sale. We're like, that'd be pretty sweet to have a TV. And then we get out of Marks and Spencer's, and we got like, you know, all these bags and stuff, and like this box of TV and this huge foam roll. And we realize, I, we don't have any way of getting home. <laughs> it's not like our car was part, like we didn't have a car, right? And we didn't have a phone. This is 2001, right? Like flip phones hadn't even been invented yet, right? We didn't have, we didn't have, we, we would purchase a phone later that week, but like we didn't even have a phone and like there were no cabs around and they certainly weren't stopping for us with our accent. And so, so April was loaded down with bags and I was loaded down with bags and had the big foam roll. And then between the two of us, we are carrying this television and you know, we're walking down the streets of Ireland and we lived kind of in the, on the backside of an industrial area. And so we're walking through these, um, through these alleyways and we pass by the Dublin fruit market. And there, as we're walking down the aisle of the Dublin fruit market, a, a, a rotten apple just hits my shoulder and explodes all over my shoulder and my face. And there was this mob of the most foul-mouthed, rude, and horrible Irish thugs I'd ever seen. They were terrifying. None of them was older than nine. And they were all throwing rotten apples at us. I mean, once the first apple hit my shoulder, they were like, <laughs> and then they started, I mean, it was just rotten apple after rotten apple thrown at us. And I, like, our hands are full of stuff, and I have my new bride, and you know, it, it, I, I'm scared, and like, what's going to happen, and are they going to attack us? And then, and then a thought dawned on me. I'm, I'm bigger than them. <laughs> so I put down my stuff, and I picked up one of the apples, and I threw it at them. Now, I was a pitcher. I have an arm. And so I hucked this apple about 75 miles an hour, <laughs> and it was accurate. 
and it, and it hit the wall right behind one of them, about six inches from their head. And the apple exploded with such force that all of them stopped and ran. <laughs> and we laughed all the way home. It's like, what, what, what were we worried about? Like, literally, like, nine-year-olds can't kill me, right? It's just rotten fruit. We'll be okay. Look, y'all, God is way bigger than me. Like, God is way bigger than our problems. So Saul hears about this young pizza delivery guy who's full of confidence, which is the first time in 40 days that Saul's heard any news like this. So he calls this unknown young man to his tent. Verse 20, 32, read with me. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you, you won't die, son. Right? You're, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're, but a, you're just a kid. He's been a man of war from his youth. Right? I love David. What does the book of Hebrews say? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. This is what David is doing. And they're, they're literally talking past each other. So Saul is trying to clothe David in his armor, which is just a bit big for David. And so David decides to, oh, here is that picture. Did I skip ahead, John? I didn't. No, I'm good. Next slide, John. Oh, yeah. I did. I, I did. David says this, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And so what it, they're literally talking past each other. David lives in a world where God can help him. Saul lives in a world where God is absent. And so David says, look, I'm going to fight him. And Saul goes, well, at least wear my armor, which is a bit, just a little bit big for him, right? <laughs> And David says, nah, no, nah, this is not going to work. So he pulls it off, and he goes to face Goliath with a wooden staff in his hand. And along the way, he crosses the stream to meet the Philistines. And there he picks up five smooth stones. And David scampers down the hill to face Goliath. And when Goliath sees David, he starts laughing. Verse 43, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now, some commentators and physicians point to this moment um, as evidence that Goliath was so big because he had a benign tumor on his pituitary gland, um, causing human growth hormone to be continually released throughout the course of his life, thus resulting in giantism. Why? It's because Goliath says, sticks. That tumor sitting on the pituitary gland would have also pressed on the optic nerve. And every single person who has giantism also has vision problems. You might know two people who have giantism. First, there's this guy, right? Andre the Giant. He had a benign tumor on his pituitary gland. The tallest man in the world named Robert uh, um, Wadlow, who was almost nine feet tall at the time of his death in his late 20s, he also had a, a benign tumor on his pituitary gland. And so maybe Goliath is seen double. Maybe not. But no matter what, he's going to destroy David and that twin standing next to David. So David fires right back 
with the only example in the Bible of how theologically, of, of how to do theologically correct smack talk. Are you ready? Here it is. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Think about it. Ron Howard, Andre the Giant. The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, behold, and cut off your head. But David doesn't stop. He's on a roll now. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all of this assembly may know that the, that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear. Read this last line with me. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into your hand. Amen? You know the rest. David charges. He sprints towards Goliath. He's rotating his sling at about six to seven revolutions per second. And he's rotating a stone that is about the size of a tennis ball. They've found these stones in the valley. Their, uh, th their density is actually denser than granite. And as he's rotating this stone at six to seven revolutions per second and he releases, it leaves his sling at about 120 miles an hour with the energy of a 45 caliber bullet. It hits Goliath right in between the eyes. The stone sinks into his head. Goliath is immediately concussed and knocked out, falls to the ground. David takes Goliath's own bronze sword, incredibly sharp, cuts off Goliath's head. The Philistines panic. They flee. Israel, whose army is there, runs after the Philistine, routs the Philistines, and wins the day. David, what does David do? Now he's got to drag all of the armor and like this head back to his tent. It's an awkward scene. But he's got a new wife and a new income and a quick line to the throne waiting for him when he gets back. Oh, and no taxes. But the Bible does something funny here. Um, David wins, but then the Bible does something funny. The author of this, this story, I mean, doesn't go to any of the victory speeches or anything like that, immediately switches back to right before when David was about to face Goliath. And Saul is talking to his army general, Abner, and Saul leans over to Abner and says, Abner, whose son is this kid? Now, why is Saul saying that? Well, Abner doesn't know who this kid is or whose dad is. And as soon as David returns, Saul speaks to David, and this is literally the last verse of this story. Read with me, verse 58. And Saul said to him, just pause there. Why? Yeah. See, the first thing that Saul thinks about isn't the fact that Ron Howard has just defeated Andre the Giant. The first thing that Saul thinks about is, who's this kid? Who's his dad? Who's his family? Are they political allies or foes? This person's going to marry my daughter. What's going on? Can I trust him? 
See, this story isn't about David or Goliath. The story is not about the pizza delivery guy who beats the giant of a man with a benign brain tumor and bad knees. This story is about David and Saul and their relationship with God. See, Saul's the kind of guy that he's become blind in his life. He can't see God working, and he assumes that God isn't available to him or won't help because he wants to do it all all on his own. And when you discount the reality of God in your life, you know what happens? You'll actually become blind to the other people in your life as well. They will simply become pawns for you. What will happen is that you will see people as opportunities or persons who can do things for you. Saul's not going to fight Goliath, so he's willing to give his daughter to the man who does. Now, how long has Saul been around David? Months and months and months and months. David sings to him when he's feeling low to relieve his anxiety. David has been his armor bearer, and not once in this whole story of David and Goliath does Saul even recognize David. He never says, oh, hi, David. I mean, it says earlier in the text, Saul loved David, and he doesn't even know who he is. He doesn't recognize him because Saul has never actually seen David. David is just another person who can do something for Saul. Now, David, on the other hand, is a young man who is focused on God and God alone. The mountain lion, the bear, the evil spirit tormenting the king, the crazy, huge, giant army guy, they're all fearsome, they're all terrible, they're all produced tons of concern, but they're nothing compared to God. Can you see how all these stories make the same point? The mountain lion, the bear, the evil spirit, the giant army guy, they're nothing compared to God. Amen? Amen. Now, if I end the sermon here, you'll remember the story about the Irish mob, and that'll be it, right? (laughs) So let me drive home the point. Um, When April and I got the chance to go to Italy two years ago, we spent two days in Assisi, where St. Francis grew up. St. Francis of Assisi, Assisi is a town. And it's no bigger than the town of Arroyo Grande. The main city center has one street on it. And when St. Francis grew up, his dad was a wool merchant, very, very, very wealthy. And St. Francis looked at his father, and when he looked at his father, he saw Saul. He saw a guy that wasn't interested in trusting God in any area of his life that could just use his power and his wealth and his pride and his ego to make things happen. Saul, like St. Francis' dad, was used to operating as a functional atheist. Yeah, yeah, I believe in God, but let's be real here. Let's just get stuff done. So there was no room in St. Francis' dad's life or Saul's life for God to interact because they both had written God off. St. Francis, he was sick with this. He was sick with the wealth. He was sick with the stuff. He was sick with this way of interacting with God. And so what he did in this crazy moment is that he said, Dad, I don't want want any part of your family business. 
In fact, he took his father's horse and some wool and sold it and gave money away to the poor, which he was arrested for. But that started his life. He was convinced like David, St. Francis was convinced like David that God is real and God is good and that there's nothing too big or scary for God to handle, that God is more than enough for all that we need. So Assisi is this now pilgrimage site in, in Italy, and hundreds of thousands, if not a million Christians, show up every year to be inspired by Assisi's faith and life. And while we are there, we are both astonished by what we've done with St. Francis. Every other store on this main drag is filled with religious trinkets dedicated to St. Francis. So we started counting and taking pictures. Not one, not two, or three, or four, or five, or six, or 10, or 20, but 36 stores in three city blocks, all dedicated to selling tchotchkes. The entire town makes money by selling religious trinkets to honor a man who renounced money and trinkets. <laughs> like, we couldn't believe it. Like, there's these like, jewelry stores. Buy your St. Francis of Assisi gold pendant ring and gold earrings. Like, this is a guy who looked at wealth and said, no, it only gets in the way. It was ironic. But this is what we do with David and Goliath. Like, we make the story an underdog story. It's not. We make it a story of how we can win. It's not. It's a story which pushes us to understand that we're not David. Who are we in this story? Saul. See, our default is to function like an atheist, as though God doesn't exist. We size up problems like God isn't there. Then we give rational explanations and suggestions about how to deal with those problems since God isn't there. And therefore, our fear and our pride and our vanity and our jealousy, it all makes sense. And this history, this story, is an opportunity for us to see who David has been pointing to this entire time, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the better king when face to face with Satan himself in the wilderness, Jesus didn't rely on his own strength, but that of his heavenly father. Like Jesus is the better David. When face to face with the giant called sin and crucifixion and death, Jesus didn't run. He faced the enemy we could never defeat and defeated it for us by dying in our place. And we didn't have to give our child away to make that happen. Instead, Jesus adopts us as his beloved daughters and worthy sons. Jesus is the better King David. Jesus didn't take the reward of his victory for himself. Instead, he gave that reward to you and I. By his victory, we've been given an, an eternal inheritance that we could never earn. And it's way better than no taxes, y'all. We're saved. We're free. We're loved. We're forgiven. We're cleansed. Say amen. 
And Jesus is the better King David, for he didn't keep the anointing of the Holy Spirit to himself. He gives it to you and me in the moment that we trust Jesus, like David trusts God. The Holy Spirit is generously poured out upon us, sealing us in Christ, giving us a new heart with new desires, so that we don't end up like Saul, but like David. You are anointed. You have a job. No matter what your day looks like, God wants to be a part of it. So fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Now, we've said some incredible truths here, so let's declare them together. Are you ready? I'm going to project them. Here we go. Here it is. There is no joy in living like a functional atheist. Right? Come on, say them loud. This is it. We're done. Here we go. This is it. Come on, baby. I trust God with my finances. I trust God with my job. God knows what I need. He's more than enough. I trust God with my most important relationships. Wait, say that again. I trust God with my most important relationships. Yeah, no matter how good or bad they are. Amen? God knows what I need. He's more than enough. Come on, read it out loud with me. I trust God with my past. I am God's chosen, beloved, obedient, worthy child. In Christ, I'm enough for my past. In Christ, I'm enough for my present. I don't listen to fear. I listen to Jesus. My battle belongs to Jesus, and he's more than enough. I trust God with my future, with my health, with this broken and weary world. The battle belongs to Jesus, and he's more than enough. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, would you bless and seal all that you've done in the hearts of my friends here today? We look to you, Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You're more than enough. God, we pray for, I pray for all of us this week as we face the challenges ahead of us. Bring your peace, bring your hope, bring your joy as we rely on you. Make every moment holy this week, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.